What's up, Rebels? How's the Great Awakening going for you? Hey, I'm Nate Houseman, and I'm here to bring you some news, knowledge, and resources to thrive in the 21st century. I'm on YouTube, I'm on Odyssey, I'm on Rumble, and I'm on Spotify Podcasts and a growing number of podcast platforms. Uh, today, we're going to look at lessons learned from the Suez Canal debacle. We're going to look at how Bitcoin is helping the people of El Salvador. We're going to look at we're going to look at how gold is helping the people of India. We're going to look at some new technology to look at, do some really creative investing. And we're going to end up with Britney Spears. Uh, if you find this information valuable, uh, please give me a thumbs up. Click the follow button or the subscribe button, whatever platform you're on, and share it. I really want to do some good for you. And if you want to support the program, I've got a few links, helpful links for you. You can go to my website, natehouseman.net. Click the shop button and buy some cool merch. <clears throat> and I got some helpful affiliate, affiliate links. There's iTrust Capital, which is a way for you to um, build a retirement build a retirement on cryptocurrency and precious metals. Just sign up there. I have a link to Ivan on Tech Academy. Ivan has a great YouTube channel, and he has a great pro program to help you um, learn how to develop uh, decentralized blockchain co codes and apps. So... If you have a business idea, or if you know someone who does, and you want to help them out, you need to get on the blockchain, and he'll uh, set you up. Also, I have a link to Acre Gold. Um, it's more important than ever to have support sound of money, and that would be that's really any currency that's not really centrally controlled by a government, like fiat currency. Gold and silver are the only currencies that are actually mandated by the U.S. Constitution, so. You can buy gold through Acre Gold. You'll um, pay a subscription of fifty dollars a month, and once you pay enough, you'll get a um, gold bar delivered to your residence. And if you want to work for yourself, or if you have a business idea and you need some freelance help, go to Fiverr. Um, there, there are so many gigs out there, ways you can help to help you out. There, there are people who um will give you investment signals on trading cryptocurrency or stocks. Uh, they're web designers. There are writers. There are people who will promote your website. It's it's really silly how much help there is on there. So click on the link. Click on any of these links in the description and a couple more. And you'll support the channel and we'll get to it. Let's look at some cryptocurrency news. Market market news. It's um very early in the morning on Monday. This is from Cointelegraph. Top five cryptocurrencies to watch this week. They are Bitcoin. Matic, Theta, CRO, and Leo. Uh, Bitcoin bulls have successfully defended the $30,000 level in the past few days, but the failure to achieve a strong rebound has some traders worried that the price will eventually dip to new lows. And I mentioned yesterday that a few people are thinking it's going to dip to below to about $24,000, which sounds terrible, but we were we were trying to break the $20,000 level with almost all, all of last year, so... We're still in pretty good shape. In a series of tweets, Eco I know Metrics said that the current correction looks very similar to 2013, when Bitcoin took 197 days to rise to all time a new all-time high in a bottom form after a 69% correction from the all-time high. If history repeats itself, then traders may need to be patient because the current correction has only been in play for 95 days. At $30,000, Bitcoin has dropped just dropped. 54% from its all-time high, and a 69% correction would sink it down to $20,000. In the 
In the report, Delphi Digital highlighted the trading activity had collapsed with spot exchange volumes having fallen more than 60% from the highs in May. So, let's look at the actual um, coins that Cointelegraph is telling us to watch. There's Bitcoin, which is the granddaddy. Bitcoin is attempting to bounce off the uh, $31,000 for support, but the long wake on today's candlestick suggests that buying dries up at higher levels. And a little bit later, we're going to talk about why people are need to put their, um, not, not trade so much, and put their crypto in wallets. The bears will now, once again, try to sink the price below the uh, $31,000 support. The 20-day exponential moving average, 33174 is sloping down and the relative strength index is in the negative zone, suggesting the bears have the upper hand. If sellers sink the price below 31000 the Bitcoin pair could drop to the next support at $28,000. Contrary to this assumption, if bulls sustain the rebound and push the price above the 50-day simple moving average, it will signal that the selling pressure is reducing. That would increase the possibility of a break above 36,670. Moving on, Matic. That, that would be the native uh, currency of the Polygon platform. Polygon has been correcting for the past few days, and the price has reached the strong support zone at 74 cents to uh, 68 cents. The bulls are likely to defend the zone aggressively. Although the moving averages are sloping down, the RSI is attempting to rebound off the oversold territory. This suggests that aggressive bulls are attempting to start a relief rally. Alternatively, if bulls propel the price to above the 20-day uh, EMA, the pair could rise to the 50-day uh, SMA. A break above its resistance would move the doors for an up move to $1.71. Theta. Now, Theta is something I'm really excited about. I am. I run a Theta node on my own computer. It's the, um, I mentioned it in another uh, video. It's the uh, platform that lets you do decentralized um, stream hosting. So if you want to do any streaming or host any streaming, you can do that on your computer and you can earn passive income. Theta has been in a downtrend, topping out at $15.88 on April 16th. The down move has reached a strong support zone at $4.57 to $3.85, which could attract buying. The downsloping moving averages suggest that the bears are in command, but the oversold levels of the RSI indicate the possibility of a counter-trend counter rally. If the price turns down from this resistance, the bears will make one more attempt to sink Theta USDT pair below the support zone. A break below the 385 will signal the start of the next leg of the downward trend. On the contrary, if bulls thrust the price above the 20-day EMA, the price could rise to the downtrend line. The breakout of this resistance will suggest a possible trend change. Crypto.com coin, the CRO for short, has been range-bound between 14 cents and 8 cents for the past few days. The price turned down from... 13 cents on July 14th, but the positive sign is that the bulls are trying to stall the correction near the moving averages. Now, Crow is the native um, token of Crypto.com, so if you if you want to use that exchange and use their own, their like debit card slash wallet, um, you do a lot of trading on the Crow coin. It would be kind of like the um, Chuck E. Cheese token uh, version of that that platform. Leo. 
Unus said Leo has been trading near the resistance of a large range between $2.03 and $2.95 for the past few days. Usually a tight consolidation near the overhead resistance indicates that bulls are not booking profits as they anticipate a breakout. So I'm not really sure what Leo is. But let's something to look out for. Now, this is all well and good. We're, we are kind of in the uh, summer doldrums. And people are just kind of like either hang on or they're not doing a lot of trading. Where they're talking about, you know, a crash in the stock market. People are just kind of like either need to take profits or hang on. Now, if you're on YouTube, a great cryptocurrency channel to follow is CryptoCasey. And she just completed this three-part uh, series on why the cryptocurrency market might collapse temporarily. And that's because of some really shady practices in both the traditional um, the traditional financial system and the uh, very popular stablecoin Tether. And these, uh, these last three uh, videos that she's done explain it very well. But the... Um, the final lesson that you really need to take is, if you have any cryptocurrency on exchanges, move it to a wallet pronto. Like, I've been moving some onto my um, Uphold wallet, and there's also the very popular uh, MetaMask wallet. Physical wallets are even better, so if you um want to order one of those, if you don't have one, do so right away. If you don't want to wait, get a digital wallet. But just hang on to your crypto, because and don't, don't trade too much, because... There's a very strong possibility that a lot of the uh, dollars and stable coins that are backing your crypto might collapse. Who knows? She'll, crypto QC will uh, set you straight. Moving on, let's talk about the Suez Canal. This is from supplychaindigital.com. It's a very good blog on the supply chain industry. And I want to talk about supply chains a lot because it's going to affect the economy and we might be seeing a crisis with the food supply. So buy local where you can and support your local farmers and try to build up a peer-to-peer -peer network. But lessons we learned from the Suez Canal nightmare. As the Ever Given finally departed Egyptian waters this week, ABBYY's Neil Murphy considers the takeaways of the high-profile disruption. The Suez Canal crisis compounded disruptions in the global supply chain already strained under the ongoing impact of the pandemic. At least 367 vessels were backed up waiting to cross, which includes container ships, bulk carriers, and oil tankers. Some ship operators opted to reroute around the Cape of Good Hope, I means like going all the way around Africa, adding more than a week of the additional sailing time, increasing fuel costs. Ultimately, the disruption caused the canal authorities in Egypt alone to cause to lose $95 million in revenue. While we're relieved to see that the Suez Canal is open for business again, it shines a spotlight on the urgent need to rethink supply chain management in the shipping and logistics industry. Lesson number one, nearshoring isn't the answer for short-term problems. Supply chains are still recovering from the impacts of COVID-19 and Brexit, and the Suez Canal crisis has put even greater pressure on the UK's global trade routes. The BDO Consulting Survey found that 33% of manufacturing companies plan to focus on nearshoring manufacturing goods to the UK. As more companies nearshore, many supply chain management companies are investing in digital transformation 
and stepping up automation. But even with new technology in place, the majority do not have the capability to adapt quickly, a key element in a time of crisis. Nearshoring, and what is nearshoring? Let's look that up. Because that is not a leak. It's a practice of transferring a business operation to a nearby country, especially in preference to a more distant one. So, okay, that's what that means. Nearshoring may cut down on time and expense, but it's a long-term strategy that takes several years and may or may not solve problems like the Suez Canal blockage. The more immediate problems are understanding and solving how supply chains handle delays, source supply shortages, and overcome lack of visibility into their operations. Companies need to have a deeper understanding of the supply chains. As the pandemic has shown, the demand for flexible, accurate supply chain logistics is on the rise. And it's important to be able to adapt to larger, more complex methods of information and product transportation. Lesson number two, don't underestimate the value of supply chain resiliency. For years, quick delivery, lean operations, and widely distributed footprint have been the top priorities for supply chain management teams. But in a matter of a few short weeks, the global coronavirus pandemic, coupled with the Suez Canal fiasco, demonstrated historically that many management teams have vastly underestimated the value of supply chain resiliency and visibility. Supply chain leaders must realize that there is no one-size-fits-all when it comes to automation. To achieve a resilient supply chain, a holistic approach is needed. Before investing in technology, they need to gain visibility into the processes that can ex expose delays, shortages, and even assess vulnerabilities that can be remediated before they occur. According to Lloyd's List, the average end-to-end -end con container shipment involves more than 30 organizations, more than 100 people, and over 200 information exchanges, yet the processes and technology supporting such shipments rarely matches up. Their processes are requiring the delivery of accurate information to enable smarter business decisions in real time and access to critical data such as bills of, of lading, trade bills, way bills, dock receipts, packing lists, and invoices. So just a lot, a lot of documentation. So I can certainly see why Databases would be a very important thing. Many of the systems of trade are currently conducted through a chaotic mess of email, paper, fax, and misaligned Excel spreadsheets. Triaging disruptions via manual tasks like sending email and updating spreadsheets can only further break processes. So what's the solution? Lesson number three. Optimize your supply chain with process intelligence. Not embracing digital innovation in the supply chain is a missed opportunity. A higher level of digital intelligence is needed that will enable supply chain leaders to properly identify and understand how process workflows operate and how intelligent automation impacts downstream and upstream processes. Sophisticated process intelligence not only effectively monitors the full scope of the organizational processes, but also evaluates the uh, direct costs associated. This enables organizations to strategically improve the cost of completing each individual process. Process intelligence can go a long way in creating more effective, efficient, and ultimately successful supply chain operations. Uh, creating more effective, efficient, and ultimately successful. Okay. It can fix time-wasting processes while immediately predicting and reacting to adver adverse conditions. So, basically, the gist of this, this whole article is there are so many moving parts, and not everyone knows who, what the other moving parts are, so... 
you just need to get educated. So I will definitely follow this blog f further because, you know, after the uh, Colonial Pipeline attack and the uh, meat um, packing cyber attack, it's very, it's going to be very important to uh, realize how we get, you know, the products from the farmers and the manufacturers to the uh, stores. So we definitely need to um, look at, take a closer look at that. So another article by Supply Chain, and this is moving on to uh, blockchain technology. Block Gemini, streamlining Vodafone CCM. Vodafone, and what is Vodafone? I've heard of them. Are they like a uh, telecommunications company? Technology Communications Europe company in Europe and Africa. All right. Vodafone, in partnership with Block Gemini, Gemini has created a commercial contract management system platform based on blockchain. So Christopher Fernandez was already a serial tech entrepreneur when he founded Block Gemini in 2016. Since then, the Dubai-based company never looked back, meeting a growing demand for blockchain implementations, particularly in the supply chain and fintech space. So I'm gonna look. I'm gonna look up Block Gemini. I think we need to follow them. And as soon as the uh, page pops up, I'm going to bookmark it. Here we go. The fact we are now working out with a company like Vodafone on a truly innovative blockchain project is testament to what we've been able to achieve in such a short span of time, he says. Cryptocurrencies like Ether and Bitcoin may have been what got everyone talking about blockchain, but Blockgemini is bullish about its long-term potential to disrupt many industries. Enterprises are waking up to this technology and its tremendous operational upside, as shown by Block Gemini's rapid expansions of its operations in Canada, India, and with support of Tomorrow Street, a joint venture between Vodafone and Luxembourg's national incubator, Technoport, to Luxembourg. Any industry that deals in transactional ecosystems that are tracked and monitored digitally can be greatly improved through the use of blockchain technology. The project we're currently deploying for Vodafone and using blockchain smart contracts to manage complex contractual agreements with their, for, with their suppliers is an example of the value that blockchain can create. Of course, managing procurement contracts is not specific to the telecoms industry, but there are many other areas specific to the telecoms industry that can benefit from the use of blockchain. In 2020, Blockgemini went to partnership with the Vodafone procurement company to tap distributed electric technology and help Vodafone transform into a digital procurement company. So, Distributed ledger is basically the um the public ledger that all you know blockchains kind of like keep a record of. If you have like a transaction in Bitcoin, if you want to like buy a certain amount of Bitcoin and send a certain amount of Bitcoin to someone else, it's all recorded on the ledger, and that's you know. And the ledgers are they exist on it exists on computers all around the world. That's that's how part of how blockchain works. So VPC manages a growing portfolio of some 50,000 contracts. Manual processes were time-consuming and vulnerable to human error. Another problem was that VPC and its suppliers maintained multiple versions of the same contracts during the negotiation and reconciliation processes, resulting in larger contract lead time and value leakages. 
Blockchain's Blockgemini solution gives Vodafone a blockchain-based CCM platform that ensures compliance and identifies value leakages in its contracts. It brings transparency and cuts contract lead times from weeks to minutes. So what this paragraph basically amounts to is they're taking human error out of it and they're you know using smart contracts, which are like computer programs, to basically manage all of the um, dealings and transactions. And I've mentioned this, smart contracts are going to be the basis of decentralized autonomous organizations, and I do believe that those are going to be, be what replace big corporations in the uh, distant future. Hopefully this the um, near future, because there's a lot of corporate corruption. Over the last two years, the collaborative relationship between Blockgemini and Vodafone developed from identifying opportunities with blockchain, to establishing a proof of value, building a POC, then an MVP, minimum viable product, and onto the pilot stage. Blockgemini has been supporting the project from its conceptual stage all the way to the deployment and maintenance of the solution. And I'm just trying to see if there's, there's just a lot of jargon in this article. I believe this, let's see here. Fernandez has a lively appreciation of Vodafone's welcoming attitude towards a startup like Blockgemini. Um, blockchain has the power to transform the global telecoms ecosystem, Chris Fernandez concludes. Take the example of fixed-line leasing services. Huge amounts of bandwidth are bought and sold across millions of customers worldwide. These transactions need to be negotiated and settled between many discrete telecoms service providers, and that's a very resource-intensive process. With blockchain, the entire manual settlement could be replaced by smart contracts instantaneously. So, just a uh, very wordy, very uh, jargon-filled article explaining, saying what I just said, taking the uh, human, taking human error out of the system, which is why it's important to apply this to the um, supply chain business. So, Blockgemini, I'm going to look at them in the future. Moving on! We're going to look at why Bitcoin is really going to help the people of El Salvador. From Coindesk, strikes Jack Mallers on fixing the fiat problem. Jack Mallers discusses Bitcoin, El Salvador, and how Strike can capture the power of open networks to spread fur further than fintech. Jack Mallers is wearing a hoodie. That's not so unusual, as the 27-year-old founder of Strike is almost always wearing a hoodie. But this one is different. It's pink, it's bright, and has a cartoon drawing of Mallers and the president of El Salvador, Nayib Bukele, along with the phrase, We got this. The phrase is a callback to a speech Mallers gave at the Bitcoin 2021 conference, where he outlined how his Strike app using the Lightning Network to speed up Bitcoin transactions, would help improve the people's lives in El Salvador. For every problem involving El Salvador's money, we got this. High, high remittance fees, we got this. Worries about inflation, we got this. Threats of gangs wanting to steal your physical cash, we got this. And get this, he did. As everyone even remotely curious about crypto knows, on June 9th, the El Salvador government voted to officially make Bitcoin a legal tender. Mallers was the man of the hour. He became chums with Bukele, and he was now suddenly prominent enough to receive a security detail. Why security guards? As Mallers puts it, for making a geopolitical statement that's arguably the biggest in the last couple of centuries. No one knows what will happen with El Salvador's embrace of Bitcoin. The range of outcomes is wide. It might be a failed experiment, 
A curious stunt they'll remember decades from now only by financial historians and the nerd kings of trivia night. Or it might, quite literally, change the world if Bitcoin is widely adopted. Maybe maybe it happens with the toppling of this domino. The idea isn't lost on Mallers. I think El Salvador's vote to accept Bitcoin does more for the world generally than just El Salvador as a country, says Mallers, who breaks down his rationale for launching strike in El Salvador, shares how and why it's actually being used, and predicts the strike will be one of the most powerful consumer brands of all time, like an Apple. So the interviewer asks, why start with El Salvador? Mallers says, as a country, it's this really interesting remittance problem. And the more you learn, you kind of realize it's very broken in a really unfair way. El Salvador tried to reach launch a nation-state currency. It didn't work. It's like a failed startup. So now they use the U.S. dollar. But because of the lack of financial stability and the civil war they went through, they ended up becoming a very violent country. So you end up with, have, with having two options. You can join a gang and support your family by committing like malicious crime, or you leave and you live in South Florida and you're a busboy and you send money home. You end up having 20, over 20% 20 of the country's GDP in remittance. That's basically um, some family member working in the United States and earning a living and sending the money back to, back to El Salvador. And they do this with companies like Western Union, where you uh, go to the uh, you go to the counter, you uh, send the money, and Western Union takes out a fee, a very high fee, and they wire the money to your family in that country. These people are getting charged up to 50% in fees, and then you learn about the fixed costs and the legacy financial system, and you realize the problems that come with dealing with physical cash is tremendously dangerous. Dangerous how? I mean, I can kind of guess, but what do you mean specifically? This is a problem I became familiar with in the cannabis industry, because my parents run a dispensary. We operate a massive security budget to protect the six figures in cash that's there all the time. Holding physical currency is extremely dangerous and leaves you vulnerable all the time. So these people are taking six-hour bus rides, getting 20 to 40% taken by, taken by Western Union, and the gangs sit outside and take another 10 to 20%. They come home with less, with less than half of what the sender sent. Damn, says the interviewer. They're dealing with the same currency, U.S. dollars, so there's no Forex problem. But there's this massive bullying and BS with the security problem. It's really sad. So, what this means is, if you can, if they can wire the um, money tr electronically, like through Bitcoin, instead of just through their, like their cell phone, smartphones, you can bypass all of that. So anyways, it was kind of like, if we can fix that problem, well surely we would do a lot of good in the world. It sounds like we would improve the quality of life, improve the security of the country. Do you have a sense of how strike is being used in El Salvador? A variety of ways. Obviously remittance. But then what people don't understand is that in the U.S., we have Cash App and Venmo, and we are very privileged in our financial experience, right? The notion of having a dollar balance on your phone and being able to pay back a friend for chicken wings or pay or to pay your landlord rent from your phone, that's an extreme convenience, and they in El Salvador don't have that. So first, the hook is remittance, because you're saving money and it's much safer and it saves you time. That's just general convenience. And then they have a dollar balance on the phone, and they're like, wait a second. So if I pay for the, uh, the pusas, uh, corn cakes, then Bob over here can pay me back from his phone. That's a tremendous convenience. There's no cash under the mattress. Then we start to see a lot of peer-to-peer. -peer. 
And then the most fascinating and important thing, in my opinion, is sending the money on the Lightning Network in an open network. They immediately found a service called BitRefill. They sell mobile top-ups and gift cards over Lightning. This is important and fascinating because it hammers some of the thesis that I hold. Open networks win. We didn't have to build like an in-store marketplace to sell all gift cards. Someone else did that. But we didn't enter a master services agreement with them. There's no commercial agreement, it just works. How does it just work? Because we all integrated the same open source payment standard. So all of a sudden, these people found themselves with money on this application that was interoperable with thousands of other services in the world that I've never talked to or spoken to. Then we saw a huge volume uptick. People get their immense. Then they realize, hey, I can pay my friends back. Hey, this store has Bitcoin Beach. Well, this one has a different Bitcoin wallet. This one has Strike. I can send and buy groceries. I can take Ubers with it. And then all of a sudden, I can top up my phone bill. I can buy Amazon gift cards. People are like, this is just a more convenient way to live. We took a country that's in the developing world and we gave them a cash app. And they held it in their hand. They were like, holy shit, this is awesome. And if El, if El Salvador is phase one, what do you envision being phases two and three for strike? So as a business, we think we're in a very unique opportunity, unique property to strike in that we are the Bitcoin brand. Whether you're a president, an NFL player, a musician, you call Jack. I didn't deal with Ethereum. I don't meet with Congress about launching a Bitcoin, a colored coin casino or something. Bitcoin, Bitcoin. I'll die for Bitcoin. That's a brand that scales globally and very naturally. And the, the article goes on for a long time, but we kind of get the point. Bitcoin is basically an, inter, you know, an international way of, and digital way of sending money anywhere in the world. And we also know that it's a hedge against inflation. And we also know that no single person or organization controls it. So this can help not just El, El Salvador is probably just the first country where this can help. This can be um, useful. So think of Africa. I, I know from a friend who's big into Bitcoin, his name's Cameron. Hey, Cameron. That a lot of people in Africa have have a smartphones, and that's it. So if they can download like a digital wallet and get on, get on an exchange, they can easily store their money safely and only have to worry about keeping their phone secure rather than maybe their gold or their cash. So that's a very, very promising development. Now, speaking of gold, though, let's see how, what it's doing in India. This is on Zero Hedge. Many Indians depend on gold to stay afloat during the pandemic. Gold has served as a lifeline for Indians pummeled by the economic storm caused by the government response to the coronavirus pandemic. The Indian government's response to the first wave of COVID-19 ravaged the economy. As a result, Many banks were reluctant to extend credit due to fear of defaults. In this tight lending environment, many Indians used their stashes of gold to secure loans. As Indians battled the second wave of COVID-19, many Indians now turned to selling their gold outright in order to make ends meet. When coronavirus gripped the world, Paul Fernandez initially took out a loan using gold as collateral to pay for his children's education after he lost his job on a cruise ship. Now he's turned to selling gold jewelry to meet expenses. He told Bloomberg, selling gold keeps him from taking on more debt. Selling my jewelry means I'm not obligated to pay someone back along 
with an additional interest on that, he said. The second wave of COVID has made a bad situation worse. For many Indians, particularly in rural areas, their investment in gold and gold jewelry is the only thing keeping them afloat. You already had a financial problem last year, and you got out of that problem through gold loans. Now again, you're having financial problems this year with a potentially third wave on the way, which can, which can again mean lockdowns and job losses, a consultant with London-based Metals Focus told Bloomberg. We can expect distress sales in a big way in August and September when the third wave can actually set in. The pandemic and the government's response has pushed many millions of Indians into poverty or bankruptcy. Selling gold jewelry is the last resort. As Bloomberg, as Bloomberg put it, people in rural areas rely on gold in times of need as it can be easily liquidated. In southern India, the country's biggest per capita gold consumer, about 25% more of old gold than usual has been sold to jewelers this year. Gold jewelry in India is different from the U.S. It's more of a it's more than fashion. Indians generally buy 24 karat gold jewelry as opposed to the 14 or 18 karat jewelry found in the U.S. Indians consider their gold jewelry as part of their savings. For many Indians, gold is a lifesaver, providing liquid liquidity that they otherwise otherwise wouldn't have. Indians traditionally buy and hold gold. Collectively, Indian households on estimated 25,000 tons of gold, that number may be even higher given the, given the black market, the large black market in the country. The metal is interwoven into the country's marriage ceremonies and cultural rights. Indians also value gold as a store of wealth, especially in poor rural regions. Two-thirds of India's gold demand comes from these areas, where the vast majority of people live outside the official tax system. So, gold has been used as a um, store of value since ancient times. Like ancient, you know, um, the Egyptians used it, the uh, Greeks used it, and India is one of the old, very old uh, cradles of civilization. So, of course, they use it. And even before then, I mean, a lot of ancient civilization cultures used grain as currency. So, something that's physical and has value, and it's not necessarily controlled or created by the government. Gold is not just a luxury in India. Even poor people buy gold in the Asian nation. According to an ICE 360 survey in 2018, one in every two households in India purchased gold within the last five years. Overall, 87% of households in the country own some amount of yellow metal. Even households at the lowest income levels in India own some gold. According to the survey, more than 75% of the families in the bottom 10% had managed to buy gold. Gold was also a major source of liquidity in 2016, when the Indian government launched a demonetization scheme. In November of that year, the uh, Indian government declared that 1,500 rupee notes would no longer be valid. They gave the public just four hours notice. 1,500 rupee notes made up 86% of the currency in circulation in the country. With a single pronouncement, the Indian government made virtually all the cash in India valueless. Many Indians have thwarted the government policy to bring the underground economy out of the shadows, by converting to black their black money into gold. Indians understand that gold tends to store value, and in the end, gold is money. If they have gold, they, they know they'll be able to get the goods and services they need, even in the event of an economic meltdown. And while Westerners may not embrace the cultural and religious aspects of the Indian love affair with gold, the economic reasons for their devotion to the yellow metal are every bit as applicable in places like the U.S. So, once again, Take advantage of my link to Acre Gold and get some.
moving to the United States, single-family rent increases drastically as Americans move to red states. This is from Daily Wire. Rent growth rates for single-family homes doubled over the past year. CoreLogic's single-family rent index from April from April showed a national rent increase of 5.3% year-over-year, up from the 2.4% year-over-year increase in April 2020. As the group summarizes, while rent growth dipped significantly last April at the start of the pandemic, rising affordability issues, supply shortages in the for-sale housing market, and ongoing demographic pressure from aging millennials have continued to place upward pressure on the single-family rental market, leading to the largest leading to the largest annual rent price increase in the nearly 15 years in April 2021. As demand for more space and outdoor amenities remains, detached rentals in particular are experiencing accelerated growth in a 7.9% year-over-year increase in April, compared to 2.2 annually of attached rentals. I believe uh, detached rentals means like houses, and attached rentals mean like apartment buildings or condos. This is reflected in a recent CoreLogic survey, which reported 49% of millennials and 64% of baby boomers strongly to prefer to live in a single standalone home. Single-family rent growth showed a strong rebound in April 2021, with all price tiers back above their pre-pandemic rent growth rate, remarked CoreLogic principal economist Molly Bozel. While rent growth slowed last April at the start of the pandemic, the, right, the rate of rent growth this April was running above pre-pandemic levels and even, even compared with 2019 and shows no signs of diminishing. Cities in Florida, Arizona, Texas, and Florida saw fast recoveries in average rents. Phoenix's rental rates increased year-over-year by 12.2%. Meanwhile, Austin and Miami saw 8.5% and 4.5% increases. Among the cities that saw decreases in single-family rental costs were Boston and Chicago, with 5.9 and 2.6% price drops, respectively. CoreLogic's data mirror, data mirror one recent survey, which reveals that Florida and Arizona saw positive net migration in the states, while New York, California, and Illinois saw negative net, negative net migration. CoreLogic's findings also align with those of Moody's Analytics and CNN Business's Back Normal Index. The report revealed that South Dakota and Florida are the only two states with economies that have expanded since COVID-19 and the lockdown-induced recession. Other states that quickly rescinded lockdown orders saw a robust economic recovery. On a global scale, China is significantly outpacing other leading countries in post-COVID growth. A report from the Organization for Economic Cooperation found that China's economy expanded by 18.3% between the first quarter of 2020 and the first quarter of 2021. Gee, I wonder if China knows something that we don't, or something if they know something that our governments aren't telling us. You know, we're going to see a very stark difference between blue states and red states and how their economies bounce back. Whatever happens in the federal government in Washington, and I think, you know, Republicans and Democrats have all kind of like Lots of plot over there. At the state level, we're seeing some real changes. And so follow what your governor is doing. That's one that's one that's one of the blue that's one of the silver linings of the whole pandemic. We've kind of learned who our governors are, who they really are. 
All right, switching gears entirely. Let's look at some new investment platforms. These are some cool resources. This is Start Engine, and they have a really they have a really helpful blog that I've discovered. And Start Engine, let's actually just look what they are. More than 500,000 people on Start Engine and build your investment portfolio. This is basically a, a an equity crowdfunding platform, which I've uh, which I've mentioned in the previous uh, YouTube video. And equity crowdfunding is basically a way for regular people who aren't accredited investors. It's a way for them to invest in startups and either get some equity ownership of the company or even get some dividends. This is an article by Start, Start Engine's blog from way back in March, but it actually tells, alerts us to a very important development. The future of startup investing is here. March 15th's regulatory changes are live. March 15th marks a historic day, a historic day for Start Engine and the equity crowdfunding industry. On March 15th, new regulatory changes go into effect that have big ramifications for Start Engine and for everyday investors who want to invest in startups. TLDR, starting March 15th, companies can raise more money via equity crowdfunding. Companies can raise up to $5 million via Reg CF and $75 million via Reg A plus in a 12-month period. And individuals can invest more money than they were previously allowed to. Why is this important? In 2020, a record 20, $10 million plus new brokerage accounts were opened. More people are investing than ever before. But the public only has access to a limited number of investment opportunities. And that's just another um, consequence of the pandemic and the money printing machine going brr. You know, people have realized, hey, we need to put our money in assets rather than the bank. So they're buying gold. They're investing in stocks. They're investing in collectibles. They're investing in cryptocurrency. And they're investing in startups. There are nearly 6 million small businesses in the U.S., and everyday investors historically only had access to 4,000 publicly traded companies. That number isn't changing very quickly. In 2020, only 480 companies went public. Yet the U.S. Census Bureau calculated that new businesses are forming at the highest rate in 13 years. There is a real disconnect between the millions of businesses in the U.S. and the few thousand companies that have access to large amounts of capital needed to become a public reporting company. This creates a problem. The general public doesn't have access to invest in the vast majority of U.S. companies. Historically, only institutional investors and wealthy accredited investors had access to invest in private companies. In turn, this problem contributes to a broader issue. The wealth gap in the U.S. is the largest it's been in several decades. The gap between the richest and poorest families more than doubled from 1989 to 2016, and COVID-19 has widened that gap further. The good news is that the times are changing. SR Engine we have created a platform open to anyone, everyone. Startup investing is no longer gated behind the doors of angel and venture capital communities. Anyone can invest in a startup on our platform. Today's regulatory changes improve equity crowdfunding for both entrepreneurs and investors and make this emerging space more viable as an alternative to traditional capital formation. So let's look at what the uh, March 15th changes are. And I am so sad that I didn't see this earlier. We're reading this on uh, July 19th. Companies can raise more. 
Starting March 15th, the maximum amount companies can raise in a given 12-month period has increased. Regulation, the regulation crowdfunding limit has been raised from $1.07 million to $5 million. The regulation A-plus limit has been raised from $50 million to $75 million. Since January 2020, we've had 49 companies reach their $1 million funding goal. These new limits mean that many of those companies could have continued raising up to $5 million. In fact, many companies that are oversubscribed and still live on Start Engine have increased their maximum funding limit today to allow their waste their waitlist investors to participate. We believe these higher limits may attract more companies to equity crowdfunding. In particular, with the new $5 million max, we see regulation crowdfunding as an even better fit for companies looking to raise their seed funding round. The average seed funding round for a company has was $2.2 million in 2020. Now investors can invest more. Not only can companies raise more, but investors can invest more too. The March 15th changes mean that when investing in regulation crowdfunding offerings, accredited investors no longer have investment limits and can invest as much as they want in regulation crowdfunding offerings. Non-accredited investors can use, their, use the greater of their annual income or net worth when calculating their investment limits. Previously, investors' limits were calculated using the lesser of the two. With these increased limits, investors can diversify their portfolio with more investments from companies raising capital via regulation crowdfunding. And the lack of limits for accredited investors mean that institutional investors can more easily invest alongside everyday investors. How cool would it be to live in a world where venture capitalists and everyday investors can invest in the same company at the same terms? So, and then there's some content specific to the Start Engine platform. The Start Engine is just one of many, you know, equity crowdfunding platforms. And this is this would be a good blog to follow, so I've already bookmarked. Here's another investment tool that you can use. It's called withvincent.com. And it's basically a search engine for different invest investment platforms. It's like there are different platforms connected to it. You can sign up and you can find different startups and fintech companies, different cryptocurrencies to invest in. And it's just, even if you don't you know, want to invest right away, it's a good place to um, do some searching and looking around and research. So take advantage of that. Another type of investment that's becoming more available to the public, farmland investing. Now, farm farmland put my brother and me through college. Uh, my, fam my family owned some farmland from way back when, and we rented to farmers, and that's like a nice check every every year. So, with platforms like AcreTrader and Farm Together, this article kind of compares the two. But these two platforms, you need to have an you know a minimum investment of like a few thousand dollars. But this might be a source of recurring, you know, passive income for you. So take a look at that. This is the website farmlandriches.com. And if farming is not up your alley, we can take a look at something called initial license offerings. This is from ILOOCX.com. And it's a platform for 
this new kind of crowdfunding called initial license offerings. So what are they? You've heard of crowdfunding, right? Where a group of individuals, often just members of the public and not professional investors, they fund a business venture by contributing a small amount of capital each, typically via the internet. An initial license offering is similar to crowdfunding in that they help revenue-ready businesses raise funds quickly from multiple sources. However, ILOs differ from normal crowdfunding in a number of ways, and we're here to explain how. So what are ILOs, and how exactly do they work, and what benefits do they afford? First and foremost, for, foremost, ILOs differ from traditional crowdfunding and they are not considered an investment, rather than, but rather a license purchase for the buyer. When a business is that is scalable and revenue ready wants to raise money, they can do so via an ILO by selling licenses. Interested parties can purchase li these licenses and are rewarded by securing entitlement to a percentage of the company's gross revenue. So if it's it's like buying a dividend stock, like if you buy into one of these um startup companies, like their license, um, you'll you'll be responsible for like promoting the business, but you can also get some get a share of their revenue. So that's another passive income stream. And when you look at the um licenses that are available, a lot of them are only like ten to fifty dollars per license. So you can like rack up a few of these fairly affordably and grow them over time. Where do I start? Where do I leave off? To validate the license they have purchased and secure the revenue entitlement, buyers are obligated to promote said company by sharing posts about them and their products services, usually online, like through social media. Once the licensed buyer has qualified themselves through such sharing activities, they will secure their inclusion in the company's royalty pool. Sharing activities might involve posting on social media, spreading the word face-to-face, -face, or even via referral codes. ILOs are carefully structured and will include X number of licenses in any one offering. For example, a company that wants to raise $3 million can offer an ILO comprising 100,000 licenses at $30 each. Providing all the licenses are sold, the company not only secures the $3 million it needs, but also benefits from having 1,000 individuals also subsequently promoting it. Companies typically start paying out quarterly royalties, usually 10% of gross revenue, to licensed buyers a year after the ILO offering. These royalties are paid into a pool and then divided equally among the licensed buyers. After 18 months, the licenses become tradable and their holders can cash out their initial stakes if they choose to. After three years, after three years, the licensed buyer has a choice. Sell the license back to the company for the same price they paid, or convert the license into shares in the business if it gets listed on the stock exchange. ILOs can reap a number of benefits for revenue-ready companies. The most obvious is that they, they, ILOs, enable a company to raise money in a short space of time without sacrificing any equity in the process. Furthermore, the company offering the ILO also benefits from having potentially thousands of advocates all promoting its product service, products and services online. As we've all come to realize in recent times, this kind of grassroots social proof can be worth its weight in gold. ILO benefits for buyers. ILOs are relatively low-cost low cost purchases, purchases with licenses starting from as little as $5. In other words, 
the financial barriers to entry are pretty low. Then there's the fact that businesses pay royalties based on the revenue, not profits. So even if a company isn't profitable, the license holder will still receive the, loyalty, the royalties they are entitled to. The value of each license should also, in theory, increase over time as the business, as the business grows. License holders can trade their licenses on bespoke platforms like ILOCX.com potentially make money in the process. As mentioned already, at the end of the three-year ILO period, holders can either sell their licenses back to the company for face value or convert them into shares. This means ILO buyers can recuperate their initial outlay, making ILOs particularly low, a low-risk purchase. Finally, if a buyer purchases licenses from a company that they generally love and or believe in, the products and services promoting, promoting said company wouldn't feel like a chore. This, plus everything we've talked about before, above, makes ILOs a win-win for both business and buyer. So, I'm going to look at these more critically in the future, but I just want to like make you aware of them. Now, this, none of this is financial advice. These are just, you know, these are just like, this is just education. And whenever you do want to invest in a company, do your own research. And look at, you know, the descriptions on the platform. Um, Google them. Um, look at whatever records are public and invest in something that you that you that you honestly feel can improve the lives of people around the world. So, winding down, let's look at some entertainment news. We're going to end with Britney, but first, let's talk about a new gaming platform. Valve announces Steam Deck handheld gaming PC to launch in December of 2021. And is this a Switch killer? Probably not. They're just some... Valve <coughs> <coughs> just probably wants to bring in some Steam store into more people's hands. Valve has announced Steam Deck, a new handheld gaming PC that docks and is ready to compete with the Nintendo Switch. The long-rumored handheld Steam Deck is launching sometime in December of this year, and the dock will be, reportedly be sold separately from the main Steam Deck handheld. Pre-orders for the Steam Deck are going live tomorrow, July 16th, so they're already going on right now on July 17th, on 19th. There are three main tiers of the hardware. There is the uh, $399 tier, which has a uh, 64 gigabytes. $529 with a 256 gigabytes and $649 with 512 gigabytes. Here's a rundown of the new hardware. Portability meets power. Uh, they partnered with AMD to create Steam Deck's custom APU optimized for handheld gaming. It is a Zen 2 plus RDNA 2 powerhouse delivering more than enough performance to run the latest AAA games in a very efficient power envelope. So... I don't know about that uh, in the lower tier, but maybe in the um, upper two ones. Control with comfort. The Steam Deck was built for extended play sessions, whether using thumbsticks or trackpads. And you can see the trackpads on here. With full-size controls positioned perfectly within your reach. The rear of the device is sculpted comfortably to fit a wide range of hand sizes. And there's a dock. So, going through a bunch of technical specs, there's going to be a dock, and you got to wonder how well this is going to um, 
translate to a lot of uh, PC gaming because video games are divided between console players and PC users. Uh, in PC games, they don't just use uh, controllers like joysticks and buttons. They use um, the mouse and keyboard along with it. You know, mouse and keyboard is very optimal for first-person shooters and like console controls, like what you see on in the picture here. They're more you know useful for like platformers or maybe RPGs or hack and slash games. It's like, is this really going to compete with the Switch? Probably not at these price points, and probably not with the uh, libraries that are you know um going to be available. Um, now Jim Sterling, he he's a YouTuber who's made who made a very big name for himself. Um, criticizing uh the Steam library, like he uh, he has a little persona called the uh, Steam Cleaner, where he just reviews some really really crappy you know, Steam games, and it's just kind of a toxic environment for anyone who's like an independent game developer. A lot of indies are finding a lot more success on the Switch, so and the Switch also has all the Nintendo franchises that people love, like Mario and Pokemon and Zelda and Smash Brothers. So, these are probably going to be, um, this looks similar to the Switch, but it's going to serve a much different audience. So, keep an eye on that. In some fashion news nonsense, this is from TheMix.net. Ella Emhoff, Kamala Harris's stepdaughter, makes high fashion runaway debut at Paris Fashion Week. So, this is Ella Emhoff, she's a model. Newly, you know, signed this year, and the hairstyle isn't doing it for me, but if you actually look at some of the um, models that run, you know, the walk the runway, they're not necessarily, you know, elite looking in their facial structure. They're more like, they're more valued for, like, their body structure and their um, real thin figures. They're, they're there to show off the clothes other than anything else. So, we'll see a picture of her in her own. Um, get up soon. Ella Emhoff, the stepdaughter of Asterisk Vice President Kamala Harris, made her fa high fashion runway debut as a model in Paris, France this month. With slicked back hair, Emhoff wore a two a black two-piece suit, an oversized floor-length floor drape from the fall winter 2021-2022 collection. Emhoff makes high fashion runway debut. And there she is. Eh, she doesn't look too bad. Emhoff, age 22, Walk in the runway show for the fashion house Bala Balenciaga in its first haute couture show in over 50 years. And I'm probably butchering the pronunciation. Balenciaga Couture. Thank you. Congrats to Dem at Demnagusalia and the whole Balen Balenciaga. Oh my gosh. Team truly amazing. M. Hoff wrote on Instagram alongside some photos of the gender fluid designs that she wore for the fashion house. After her stepmother became the asterisk vice president, Emhoff was signed to IMG Models, and she has since scored gigs modeling not only for Balenciaga, also for New York Fashion Week. I was pretty surprised when anything, when everything with IMG was happening, because when I was younger, I never saw that as being part of my timeline, Emhoff said in February, according to Today. As someone who, like a lot of young girls out there, has self-confidence issues, it is intimidating and scary to go into this world that's hyper-focused on you and body, she added. USA Today reported that designers Lazaro Hernandez and Jack McCullough said earlier this year 
that the fashion world would fell in love with Emhoff as she appeared at Joe Biden's inauguration. Hernandez explained that she he sees Emhoff as the impersonation, that's probably a bad word, of, a, of this idea of a new beginning, a whole new chapter in American life and American culture. And we'll have to see how the um, American people, how that goes down with the American people on Main Street, but we'll see. She's a nice sort of ambassador of the new moment, he said. You know, by the filter of fashion, art, and craft, and the world we all inhabit. She's sort of the ambassador of that. Emhoff is the daughter of Doug Emhoff, who was married to Kamala Harris. She's a graduate of Parsons School of Design in New York City. She also has her own knitwear line. You can check out one of her creations that has the uh, pink pussy hat below. Ha! Emhoff celebrated Melania Trump's snub. Of course. It should be noted that despite having years of modeling experience, Melania Trump did not appear on a single magazine cover during Donald Trump's first term. Meanwhile, Emhoff is being celebrated as the new It Girl supermodel in the modeling world. Even Emhoff's most devoted fans would have difficulty denying with a straight face that she has only been given these modeling opportunities because comes from a family of prominent Democrats. I guess being liberal comes with some perks. Uh, I wouldn't call her a liberal. I'd call that family frauds. So, oh, Emhoff, she's a kid. She's only 22. She's still learning things about the world. I didn't really become financial, you know, politically aware until I was 23, and that's about the time the Iraq War started. So, I'll give the kid, I'll cut the kids some slack. But just look out, just look out for her. Now, we're gonna end with Brittany, and it's a very short little piece here. Brittany knows secrets she wants to tell us. Former Trump White House legal counsel. Andrew Kloster states that Britney Spears is more important than you realize, and she's going to rub pill you so hard. So he, Andrew Kloster, he tweeted out, Let me remind you that Britney Spears is more important than any of you know, realize right now. All of it come clear in time. Protect her. Yes, she's going to rub pill you so hard. This is why she's important. So. I have a feeling it's not just Britney. You know, I've heard that, you know, a lot of pop stars, when they were young, they were, you know, very tightly controlled, maybe not by their fathers, but by their husbands. You hear about, you know, Tina Turner being abused so horribly by Ike. Um, I heard mentioned that Mariah Carey, she was married to her, uh, you know, her manager, who was many years older than her. Um, Celine Dion, I wonder. I don't remember exactly with her. But a lot of these, you know, a lot of these, uh, you know, Pop singers, and also probably a lot of you know Hollywood stars. They're they're very they're probably very you know under wraps a whole lot. And Britney is just the most extreme example. So if she man if she wins in court, and if she gets to speak to Congress like you know a lot of Republicans want her to, she's gonna she's not gonna just help herself. She's gonna blow off an entire culture of corruption and abuse. So. Definitely keep an eye on her. So, I think we're going to wrap it up. Once again, check out my links for helpful resources. You can follow my blog at neathasman.net. If I'm not, you know, recording videos for YouTube, Rumble, Odyssey, and the podcast, I'm sharing articles on here. And 
gosh, it's just taking forever. And I got some, and I'll tip you off to some helpful uh, newsmakers. So with that, I'm going to let you go. Have a good one.